Hello, comrades and friends. This is the Highlands Bunker Podcast. We're in the shadow of Rockford Tower, behind enemy lines, waging a guerrilla propaganda war against the Delaware Way elite. Carl, as always, is hanging from a secured location. Our guest today is Nia Cola. Nia is an economist who did her graduate work at Johns Hopkins University. She is also part of the group of YouTubers and podcasters in the online world committed to continuing the leftist project of the late Michael Brooks. Uh, although we've chatted in DMs, uh, we've never spoken uh, personally, so I am pleased to welcome uh, Nia Cola to the podcast. Hi, Nia. Hi. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, as I mentioned to you earlier, we we did do a uh, an episode on MMT very early, about two years ago, when we started um, the podcast, because I I it was a sort of a new concept for a lot of people. It's still a new concept for a lot of people. Um, but we, we sort of just scratched the surface on it. So today I, I want to get in, uh, maybe into a little more detail about it. And where I wanted to sort of start off is uh, the, the gold standard versus fiat currency. Um, I, I've been reading uh, a lot about Reconstruction lately. And one of the things that jumped out at me was this argument between uh, the greenbacks that were issued during the Civil War, uh, basically to fight the Civil War when we came off of the gold standard, and then the arguments that were happening during Reconstruction uh, about this very thing, about um, pinning the value of currency to some precious metal or some other thing, um, or, um, or not. Um, interestingly, there was, a, there was a large political movement in Virginia uh, called the Readjusters, it was a diverse, uh, very diverse political party that was a that was in opposition to the capitalist reactionary sort of bourbon Democrats uh, in Virginia. Uh, and it was headed by an ex-Confederate, uh, but it brought together freemen, um, small yeoman farmers. And the rallying sort of call to get that started was this argument about greenbacks versus gold. Uh, at the end of the Civil War, I think the greenbacks were only worth maybe 40% of what a uh, gold note was worth. And so paying out, uh, paying out large capital in gold was, uh, was, a, was a big boom for them, and it was sort of a capitalist corporate bailout, um, to put it you know, in more modern terms. And this was the genesis of a political party that, you know, before Reconstruction ended and—, and, and that project was killed, uh, did make a lot of, of political gains in Virginia, and it was based uh, initially on this idea of the gold standard versus greenbacks or fiat currency. Um, can you just talk a little bit about um, fiat currency itself, uh, the how, we, how we value it, and just sort of like an intro for everybody to level set them on uh, monetary theory? Yeah, um, so... We used to have uh, commodity-backed currencies, and as you know, as as you said, um, the value of the currency then is weighted on. It rests on, upon the value of these whatever it is that backs it. Uh, and you know, a lot of people think that this is like the. It's a real currency because these things have actual value, whereas paper currencies have no value. I mean, it's just a representation. Really, the shift from fiat to, I mean, shift from commodity-backed currencies to fiat currencies is pretty important. And the value of a fiat currency traditionally is understood as being <clears throat> coming from the credibility of that currency. 
it, you, you know that it has value because you know you can get something for it. So you know that the dollar has value because there are lots of goods that you can buy of a dollar. A lot of people, this doesn't seem to make sense because it's like almost like cyclical logic, like it has value because it has value. But in practice, it, it works. I mean, we all use dollars, you know? The modern monetary view of, of money really comes to what they call chartalism or neo-chartalism, really, which chartalism means essentially tokenism, the idea that currency are just a, a, a token of sorts. And yeah, the, the paper itself doesn't have any value, but it represents real value. Um, and one way that it's often analogized is like, you, you know, the, the actual physical piece of paper has no value. It's the, the number on paper is really what, where the value is. It's almost like how you can't concretely hold an inch, right? We all know inches are real though. An inch is a measurement, is a measurement of value. A dollar is a measurement of value. Um, so the value of the dollar comes from or your ability to use it for things. A big argument for the MMT school as to why this works is because of the public sector's enforcement of that value. The public sector offers us um, public goods. And in exchange for those public goods, we have to pay taxes. So the reason we need dollars is to pay our taxes. So that gives it a certain value. There's a reason you want dollars as opposed to gold, because you cannot pay your taxes in gold, right? Yeah, and, and I think the way I've tried to explain it to people is kind of thinking about everything they know, but just turning it uh, turning it around. Um, like uh, the, the, the book that's out now that everybody is reading is The Deficit Myth. And the way I sort of explain that is there can't be a deficit when there's no bank balance. There's no – there's nothing in a there, – there's no value sitting in a bank – and if I spend more than is there, uh, I'm at a deficit. That that doesn't exist. Um, the value of the currency uh, that's spent by the that is that's put into the economy by the federal government is really based on the economic output of the country. About how much, as you said, how much you can you can take back in taxes or you can slow down at some other time. So as long as the country is able to produce all of the things that it produces, um, then you can you can print money or, or issue money to whatever limit you choose. They're, they're really, you know, it, you, you can imagine what that limit could be, but it's certainly uh, a lot more than what we think of it now. And so it's sort of the opposite. The, the, the money exists because we have uh, production output, not that we've earned it or, or that it's ours. It just exists. Yeah, uh yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so how does uh, how does the MMT school explain sort of the um, the spending of the government? Because that's sort of what I, what I think is the MMT has been used to sort of illustrate the fact that um, there are social programs and and things that can be done to. Uh, to improve people's conditions based on the output of the country that we can, that we can do so we can spend sort of spend the money that we know we can have. And I think that that's an important um, aspect of it. And I, if you could sort of 
talk about that a little bit, about how the, the government might fund itself, fund its programs, fund its military, basically fund everything um, based on based on that idea. Yeah. So, yeah, the MMT school wants to separate taxation from spending. Um, and that's because, you know, as you, you alluded, there's the government can spend whatever it wants. It creates its own money, uh, at least our government, you know, other governments, there are degrees of monetary sovereignty. That's one of the focuses of the school. Uh, Fadel Kaboom uh, outlined four different uh, aspects of monetary sovereignty. And um, I believe there, the country issues its own currency is one of them, that the country uh, issues debt only in its own currency. And um, struggling to remember the other ones. You know, also I wanted to say, I was trained in orthodox economics. I'm actually kind of a neophyte to MMT, something I'm uh, educating myself on now. And it's a very deep school, actually. So I, I don't like to claim myself as an MMT economist, but I'm continuing to learn about it. Uh, but yeah, so there are degrees of monetary sovereignty based on the sort of institutions in a country. That degree of monetary sovereignty determines how much the country can fund whatever it wants. Uh, a country like the United States is pretty much fully sovereign. So our limit really comes down to our productive capacity. And when we talk about, you know, taxes, a lot of the times the debate is framed as in, we need to tax this money out of the economy to in, order, in order to spend on these government programs. But the reality is that this isn't really how it works in practice. Um, you know, when budgets are formed, there are taxes, but it's not that we're literally taking these tax dollars and moving them to spend elsewhere. <laughs> you know, uh, the government could spend that money on its own. And then, you know, people's fear is that by injecting so much money into the economy, you get inflation. This is the mainstream view of money, which is really like a, a quantity theory of money, that the more money that is out there, uh, the more inflation you generate. MNT contradicts this view in that they, the school really doesn't believe that demand drives inflation pretty much at all, except for maybe in some rare instances, and to a minor degree. Really, it's the fundamental aspect of the MNT view of inflation is that inflation is driven by costs, not by demand, and that... Um, Businesses' price-setting behavior is not determined by what demand they're facing. It is determined by uh, accounting processes that these businesses have developed over centuries, over ideas that are socially constructed. And these can change over time, in fact. Uh, so businesses will often say that they'll, you know, you'll cause inflation if you spend this money. But in practice, we find that this doesn't really hold up a whole lot. Uh, if their costs are not rising, they're not going to raise their prices. Yeah, I think there's there's a lot of historical evidence when people look at, you know, I think that there's a knee-jerk reaction uh, for people to say that uh, there would be inflation. But when you look at our situation now and when you look at situations over history, you don't really see any um, in that, uh, you know, in that construct. So... Uh, it is it is very interesting in that also and I pulled it up but I, I'm probably not going to play it maybe Carl can cut it in later but there's a pretty famous clip from 60 Minutes where Ben Bernanke is uh, speaking with Scott Pelley about the 2008 uh, bailout housing bubble bailout is that tax money that the Fed is spending it's not tax money the banks have um, accounts with the Fed 
much the same way that you have an account in a commercial bank. So to lend to a bank, we simply use the computer to mark up the uh, size of the account that they have with the Fed. So it's much more akin, uh, although not exactly the same, but it's much more akin to printing money than it is to borrowing. Now, and they do it all the time. They did it in 2008. Uh, we've just done it again. And so that is done on the supply side uh, because we are because our institutions are equipped to do that for particular reasons. There's absolutely no reason we couldn't do it on the demand side and basically give people money for either health care or just cash or whatever. Uh, it would work very much in the same way. Um, but there's, a, I guess, a structural and an ideological disconnect there. Uh, maybe you can talk about the mechanics of it and the ideology of it a little bit and, and give people a little bit of background. Yeah. Um, yeah, the ideology of it is pretty much the big impediment right now. You see the Federal Reserve basically engaging in MMT uh, policy while refusing to accept the theory. <laughs> you know, Bernanke himself even said, like, you know, uh, like the QE doesn't work in theory, but it works in practice, which it doesn't work very well in practice either, but they know that the theory is wrong. They've even admitted they have no, you know, functional model of, of, of inflation. They've failed to generate inflation for over a decade now. Um, um, just to, just to uh, stop in, the QE is quantitative easing, uh, which is not only a, a one, one injection of, of, cash like a bailout but an ongoing way to i guess i would say uh ensure liquidity in all of these markets can you explain just people might not be familiar with quantitative easing maybe you could uh give like a one minute little rundown of it yeah yeah quantitative easing which is um something that we uh engaged in uh following the great recession it was uh what they call unconventional monetary policy um and so like you know, conventional monetary policy revolves around altering the interest rate, uh, primarily, you know, the federal funds rate, which is the overnight banking rate, the, over the rate for overnight loans. Um, the Federal Reserve brought that down to zero. And they consider, you know, traditionally in, in central banking, that is considered the lower bound, that you cannot go into negative territory. A couple of countries now have tried going into negative territory as an, another experiment. Um, I don't think that's been very successful. <laughs> it's something that we probably don't want uh, for a number of reasons. But uh, the unconventional policies that they undertook at the Federal Reserve was quantitative easing, which was large-scale asset purchases, purchases <laughs> along with uh, the signaling aspect. And so the large-scale asset purchases, purchases were that the Federal Reserve was increasing uh, its buying of long-term securities as opposed to short-term securities, uh, as well as mortgage-backed securities. So it not only bought up U.S. government debt that is long-term, but also these securities that are backed by housing, you know, by mortgages, that after the Great Recession, we had a whole lot of really bad debt in, in the housing sector. So it was, the idea was that they would take all of these, um, you know, in, in the form of the treasuries, these very safe assets in the form of the mortgage securities, uh, riskier assets off the market, because then if they buy them up, uh, investors have fewer options, you know, so they, they're going to be investing in other things. So by buying up these long-term securities, you sort of shift people's portfolios. Uh, they call that the portfolio ba balance effect, because 
by taking up more and more of the safe assets, people have to take up, have to buy up the the riskier assets. And the idea was that this would increase uh, investment in the economy and increase, you know, risk taking to a degree. Uh, and you know, it certainly we, we did see the interest rates continue to lower, uh, the long term interest rates lowering, but. Uh, it's hard to say it was a massive success when we consider how long it took to get back to a normal unemployment rate, right? Uh, it took like a decade to get there. Um, and uh, the other effect that I mentioned was the signaling effect. The Federal Reserve actually considers the signaling effect to be more important, and in theory, it should be as well. I mean, the theory around QE is it really revolves around this signal, which is that by signaling to market actors that they will continue these purchases indefinitely, uh, people's decision-making about the future will be altered. So, you know, like, you know what the short-term interest rate is now, but you never know what it's going to be in the future, right? But if the Federal Reserve says, we're going to continue buying this indefinitely, we're going to continue the zero interest rate policy indefinitely, then that, you know, that reassures market actors. So they're more willing to take these long-term risks. Yeah, this is what I, and again, just to nail home this point, this money that's used to uh, sort of buy up different kinds of securities to sort of push uh, large investment one way or the other, um, that money is just created. It doesn't come from an account. There's no, you know, nobody writes a check out of, you know, the balance is this and then it's that. Um, it is, it's, it's created based on the conditions of the entire economy and what we think the production can be of the entire economy to basically um, make it easier to do business at the highest levels of finance. Um, I, I don't know if you could add anything to that um, from maybe a political aspect or, or, or anything like that. I, I don't know what your other thoughts are on sort of this continual, not just a, not just a, a boost to the supply side, but a, a continual safety net um, to make sure that large institutional investment and, and, international finance just basically feels like there's there's a safety net uh there to do to do the kind of um investing that they do yeah that's a you know safety net is a really good way to put it because i mean in central banking they refer to the fed as the lender of last resort uh it lends to these institutions who are in trouble no matter what they need because we need the banking system to continue to exist uh you know we had this whole bailout as well because we were told <laughs> we can't let these banks fail because then we'll have an even worse economy which is true you know if we didn't have the the bailouts then these banks would have collapsed and a lot more people would have been in trouble but at the same time of course those bailouts were not handled <laughs> very well and at this point i'm almost of the uh, position that it would have been better to let them fail because now we have these massive banks that have so much power and they know that the you know they're never going to fail they can take whatever risks they want uh so when the federal reserve engaged in qe and and this like unlimited backing of these institutions it it subsidized them it, so as a you know a public sector institution it subsidized the biggest most powerful actors this is uh really led to a massive increase in inequality over this time and the concentration of power in these institutions that, you know, it's been, it's had a deteriorating effect on our politics. Uh, this happened to occur at the same time that we had the Citizens United ruling that allowed unlimited money into our politics. 
and now we're, we're we're really seeing things deteriorate pretty rapidly as we have massively wealthy people and institutions continuing to spend more and more of his just control our politics yes so uh, the the next thing i sort of want to get into is that just recently um the the biden transition uh, committee i i guess has uh has floated some some numbers about a a covid relief bailout package that are in the trillions of dollars um and i think when people see that um they uh, immediately sort of shut down and and the, the conversation gets a little it's a little strange but but again i what i want people to think about is that this kind of injection of of large sums uh, really happens all the time, but it happens to the benefit uh, of large institutional investment, uh, large finance, etc. Um, what we what we saw, for example, uh, for the first uh, the first six hundred dollar or was it twelve hundred dollar check during the COVID crisis last year in the spring, we actually saw. Uh, you know, a noticeable lowering of, of poverty through the country. Uh, the, the people living in poverty and in desperate situation um, decreased in a way that was able to be measured over the course of several months. Um, and maybe you can talk a little bit about injecting some of that money into social programs or just a, a perhaps even uh, starting to look at UBI. I don't know w how that fits in. Uh, to this in, in your view, um, but starting to take the the process by which we give a safety net to large capital and start to spread that around um, to improve people's lives. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, these big price tags can scare a lot of people, but, uh, you know, at the same time, like, if, if you ask anybody right now, should we all be getting uh, $2,000 checks, about 70% of people would be saying, yeah, why not? And you know, it's, it's, there's really no reason not to. I mean, people are struggling. Uh, they don't have the same income that they used to have. So why not give them this money? Now, there is this view, again, this quantity theory of money view that is really inherent to a lot of people's thinking. And so they think like, right now, it might be acceptable. But in other times, you know, if the con was at full capacity and you gave people a lot of money, well, then you get inflation. But actually, like, think back only a couple years ago, the single biggest <laughs> legislative achievement of the Trump administration was a absolutely massive tax cut when we were, you know, still at a booming economy and had very low unemployment. And we didn't see un uh, inflation take off then. So why would we see it now of, of all times? Again, this goes back to how the MMT view doesn't view this inflation question as being uh, about the quantity of money, but about the uh, productive capacity and the distribution of market power. Um, you know, there's also like a focus in MMT on antitrust policy, uh, which is there is an antitrust uh, vision that you know, allows for breaking up banks and or other institutions that would not fundamentally change the power structures. But for MMT, that's what it's really about is where is the power? Who has the power? Who has the market power? You know, if we're going to engage in antitrust policy, it should be focused on 
distributing that power more broadly, making it so that price setting is more democratic. Um, in terms of funding programs, you know, there's so much in these, this economy that is not being taken care of. Uh, whether you want to talk about environmental protection, like in the Green New Deal, or just care work, you know, there's all these people who need child care or elderly care who are not getting it. If we fund people to do these jobs, you know, would that generate inflation? Why would it? Why would it generate inflation whenever what's happening is that you're actually increasing production, you're increasing, you know, people's quality of life. So why would this increase inflation? It only would if you had this quantity theory of money view. And again, that's just, it doesn't seem to bear out. Uh, we, we injected a huge amount of cash into a booming economy and we still saw no inflation. We've been completely unable to generate inflation. Um, in terms of UBI, you know, there are some left advocates and some even in the MMT school who do support a UBI. I'm, I've always been more of like a half-hearted supporter of it. It's, to me, you know, it's never been my priority. I think it seems fine, but I've heard some pretty decent criticisms of the UBI now. And I'm increasingly of the mindset that there are better ways to uh, spend our money, really. I mean, often the debate is framed between the federal jobs guarantee or UBI. And at this point, I'm more of the mindset that the federal jobs guarantee is a better way to get people money. Um, because with UBI, you're just giving everybody money. And there's a political aspect to this. You know, there's already an issue with the right wing framing things as free giveaways to people. If we actually give money away to people for free, <laughs> undifferentiated, uh, to, to buy whatever they want, then it becomes even easier to attack this as illegitimate. Um, if instead people have to work for their money, then it becomes a lot harder to say that this is an inappropriate way to, to uh, help people out, which isn't to say that everyone has to, to be working though. There's obviously gonna be people who uh, are fully incapacitated. You know, there's people who are disabled, but some disabled people could still do some sort of work. It's just not the kind of work that is marketable in our sort of society right now. But there are people of course, who cannot do any sort of work. And, of course, we, we do need programs for them as well. Um, but yeah, the, the the federal jobs guarantee would be one of these sort of revolutionary reforms, which is the focus of the school is restructuring our economy in a way that, you know, is not just about making people's lives better, but it's about redistributing power and altering the sort of relations in the marketplace, relations in society. Um, yeah, those two things do work together. I know like the, the jobs guarantees that I've seen proposed, a lot, a, one of them is basically embedded in the Green New Deal. And it just is an example of how uh, we can we can make things more democratic. We can distribute resources uh, in a more fair way, but also accomplish very large sort of social and political goals at the same time. So this can all kind of come in together uh, and, and, and advance uh rather quickly sort of where we want to go if the if people can sort of get their head around the the, the economics of it um i want to get back to the inflation bit because i i want to get your your feeling on it because yes the the incredible the, the tax cuts um that injected basically tons of more money 
um, into the economy was mostly for uh, you know the wealthiest firms and the wealthiest people. And so the idea, I think, is that those people then or those firms sort of hoard it. Um, it, it doesn't increase um, spending, uh, consumer spending as much. Um, whereas, you know, benefits to consumers, to middle class people, to working class people, um, to poor folks, that's go that will, uh, you know, drive up spending. So now the question becomes, and I'm not sure I understand it perfectly, that the 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 cost aspect of it and the pricing uh, would not be impacted by an increase in demand. Can you explain that? Uh, uh, because I don't even know if I'm if I'm getting it. I, I understand what you're saying. I'm just not sure I understand the history of the background of it. Sure. Um, yeah, this is very important. It's something I, I continue to educate myself on because it's quite deep. But it does. It comes down to this idea that uh, businesses, they're, they set their prices based on their beliefs about how to run their business, not about uh, how much demand is coming in. So they, 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 they really set their prices mostly on the cost of their inputs and the power they have in the market. So if you have a very concentrated market, then they have more power, right? They have more monopoly power, as we call it. Uh, if you have like, you know, in the banking industry, you have only like four big banks, there aren't a lot of options for you if you, uh, you know, aren't getting a good deal, uh, which, you know, a lot of us aren't. Um, <laughs> uh, so like, if you, if you break up those companies for one, you reduce their market power, you reduce their ability to raise their prices. Like if you were to break up all these uh, car companies, which car companies are also, you know, it, the automotive sector is also pretty consolidated. Also the media market is very consolidated. We're really dealing with this problem in every sector now where we're just seeing increasing consolidation. Uh, you know, the media market, the auto market, the banking market, the healthcare market, we also only have like what, four big healthcare companies. Uh, we have, uh, Amazon, Walmart, uh, these big retail companies are also consolidating. Basically, everything is becoming just a couple of companies. And this even isn't, we're not even talking MMT, this is just mainstream economics at this point. If you break up these companies, they're going to have less monopoly power, they're going to be able to raise their prices less, because they have more competition. You know, sorry. No, that's what I was going to say. The next thing is, is how these two things work together. That that control or, or making that more democratic and and that insurance, the way the way you insure as it's been done historically, uh, or or a check on inflation, that's where the that's where the the antitrust stuff comes in, is if 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 you don't have as much monopoly, uh, you're 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 checking you're checking the fact that firms can just do whatever they want untethered to sort of their business. Uh, whereas when you, when you break up some of these companies or you ensure that there are uh, a variety of different consumer choices, if you want, want to say, whether it's health or, or retail or whatever, um, those, those firms aren't in a position to say, Oh, there's, there's X amount of dollars more into the economy. Um, so we can just raise our prices by 15%. Uh, they don't think that that cost at pr the, the price point is, is, as you said, is determined by 
the business, the inputs, the labor input, whatever, whatever the profit margin is. And if, if there, if the power isn't centralized, it's a check on that, which I think is extremely important. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. And then and on top of that, there are actual, you know, productive constraints or there is capacity constraints, but in the long run, those things can be overcome. You know, um, if a business is facing a shortage of, of any of its parts or uh, its inputs in any way, yeah, it's that, that in the typical view of money um, that would in generate inflation. But in reality, these companies know that, well, we're facing more demand, so we'll invest in this. In the long, you know, and in the long run, this isn't going to be an upward price pressure because they, they will just increase their capacity in whatever regard that they're uh, feeling a shortage of. And in the public domain, if we create like demand for some given service, some given good, and we're facing these sort of capacity constraints, we can also just invest in increasing the capacity in that sector, whatever it might be, you know. Yeah, for, for the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about something uh, exciting along these lines. Um, there was a, uh, an article today in the New York Times. There was an article today in Politico, all talking about uh, the man who will now be the, the chair of the Senate Budget Committee, our friend, our, our friend Bernard. Um, and I know that all of these things are going to come to bear, and he is going to be, I think, what Politico described it as, aggressive um yeah because i th i think that's going to be a place to watch to see uh, what bernie does in the senate budget committee um the kind of hearings that the kind of people he speaks to uh the kind of hearings that he has because i think we're going to see a lot of these uh a lot of these pieces of mmt come out in a very digestible way because i think this is something i know that bernie has worked with Stephanie Kelton and her and a lot of MMTers in the past, they've been in the Sanders Institute. Um, so I'm excited to see what uh, what he's going to do. I wonder what um, your feeling about that is, and and maybe some of the some of the more digestible bits that you think people might start um, understanding as as his work uh, on, as the chair of that committee begins. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy that he's going to be chairing that, that committee. I haven't looked into exactly what he's going to be proposing. Um, I'm not sure if he's talked about it in specifics yet, but of course he's going to be more aggressive. Bernie really understands our, you know, how to how to engage in politics much better than most other Democrats, and he understands uh, the real ca capacity constraints this country faces, which are uh, much higher than we're currently making use of. So I imagine he will be pushing for spending wherever he can get it, uh, and less austerity. You know. Uh, before I go too deep into Bernie, I, you know, going back to what you were saying in terms of uh, the public spending its money and how we get more capacity, you know, when the government spends its money, we're not just spending it on digging holes, uh, we're spending it on things that create production. And so that increases the, uh, you know, the overall production in our economy. And that also fuels our ability to spend more because, again, our, our constraints are really our productive capacities. So if we invest in creating more production, creating, you know, goods for people, then this creates a sort of positive feedback loop as opposed to the negative feedback, or I guess it is still a positive feedback loop, just in the other direction of austerity, where if you cut government spending, you also cut your revenue. 
uh, if we increase government spending, we also increase our revenue because that money flows through the economy and people spend it and then we, we get more taxes. You know, if we pay people to do, engage in care work, uh, they have higher incomes, they're going to be buying other things, they pay sales tax, they pay income tax. So by investing more, we also get more out of it. So I think, you know, Bernie, I'm pretty optimistic about what he's going to be pushing for. I'm sure he will be focused on his longtime goal, Medicare for All, which would be huge. Uh, Medicare for All is on the level of the job guarantee for me in terms of really being a fundamental restructuring of our economy. Uh, it would be one of the most uh, socialistic healthcare systems in the world, which might scare some people using that word, but you know, the best healthcare, healthcare system in the world is consistently ranked as the British one, which is itself currently the most socialistic, the most nationalized healthcare system. Um, and I think it's really important on a political aspect also to uh, create these, the perception of these economic rights that a Medicare for all would give us, you know, uh, it's, it's, it establishes that healthcare is a right, not a commodity that you earn. It's something that we all deserve. So that's something I'm, I'm really hopeful for. Uh, and the jobs guarantee is similar to that in that it's a public option for jobs. It establishes that we all have a right to work if we really want to, which is a funny way to say it, considering what right to work actually means uh, <laughs> in, in legislation currently. Yeah, usually when people talk about the right to work or the dignity of work, my, I, you know, I get peaked and I know I'm going to fight. Um, but yeah, in this case, if people look at, uh, as I said, the Green New Deal has a lot of these um, aspects to it. But even even infrastructure projects, spending on, you know, modern infrastructure, roads, airports, uh, per perhaps, you know, uh, rail lines that are more environmental friendly that could be you know also part of green new deal these things looked at uh under this rubric under mmt these things actually add capacity to your country to your economy so whatever whatever the capacity is that you're able to work from actually as you spend this money and spend it wisely and improving and in democratically and spreading it out then the capacity actually goes up and you can spend more so it actually builds on itself rather than as you said the the while it while i guess it's uh, it's a good story for some people the austerity being the reverse of that um where yeah it does build on itself but it but it's the undemocratic way to build on itself it, it's only a small group of people keeps everything uh sort of uh, condensed and actually just creates more more conflict and more pain in the country, really. Uh, yeah. 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 Um, that touches on, you know, this very fundamental framing to MNT is this idea that it is the public's money. And, you know, what we want to do is to engage in more democratic planning in the economy, because a lot of people will, you know, on the right say that you, they don't want central planning, they don't want a planned economy, but there's always going to be planning in the economy. The question is, who's doing the planning? And right now it's, you know, in the hands of a private elite. And what they what the powerful do when they have the ability to plan our economy is to plan it in a way that it benefits them primarily. That's a, not a shocker for anyone. <laughs> well, um, I, I want to thank you for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, hopefully we get a chance to um, talk more about this as, uh, as Bernie starts to do his work. Uh, and as things start to um, shake out 
uh, from whatever we're going through right now, which is <laughs> which is getting stranger by the day. Um, I hope that you, we can come back and maybe do some quick hits about um, you know things that are on the table uh, and also kind of uh, seg them into people's people's lives here. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the state of Delaware was able to acquire through the CARES Act a lot of just funds to use. It was pretty. It was pretty open about how how to use some of these, and of course these were funds that were uh, created uh, by the Treasury just out of thin air, just like that. Um, but our some of our politicians here actually um, did something good. Uh, shout out Matt Meyer. Uh, and use some of those funds to purchase uh, what was a, a fairly brand new hotel that um, just went out of business for lots of different sort of economic reasons um, to use as an emergency center for uh, for homeless folks to get them not only housed but also have a place where services were available, where food was available, um, uh, whether health care is available and all of that. Uh, and that was used from CARES money. Um now, when you, this that that move, that political idea and, and and execution of it was based on the fact that money is available to address these social issues. And and if we are aggressive and we take the time to think about how to do this democratically, um, there's going to be a lot of wins um, and, and a lot of people's lives are going to be uh, improved. And when that happens, it improves everybody's life. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. There's, there's all these, like, um, you know, like you said, these hotels that are empty. Um, this is just capacity being uh, wasted if we don't make use of it. So why not just, you know, make use of it? It's, it's not going to generate inflation. Uh, it's already there and it's just not being used. Yeah, exactly. I think housing's a, housing's a big one, um, especially in places, in, in more urban places where housing has become like a like really commodified and, you know, you see, you know, empty townhomes or empty apartments in, in fancy neighborhoods. It's just, it's an expression of this. It's an expression of capacity that's just commodified for rich people that's completely unused. It's completely wasted. Um, and, and so we can sort of use this use this concept that is, you know, it seems difficult to understand. But when you lay it upon um uh, you know, sort of how the treasury and how the Fed spends money now, I think people start to get it. And that can be leveraged uh, very heavily as part of this leftist project that we're that we're all on. So, yeah. Um, before I go, uh, if I could just plug some uh, more knowledgeable MMT people. Absolutely. Yeah. So like uh, my friends over at the Superstructure Pod, they have a very interesting podcast that focuses on MMT from a more philosophical lens and looks at more of the sort of media, uh, the left media and how things are talked about. I would say that's one of the most interesting ones out there and people should definitely check that out. But also if you want a more economics focused one that is more in-depth from much more knowledgeable people than me on MMT, check out Money on the Left. Uh, that's with uh, Max Seho and uh, Scott Ferguson, and they talk often to actual MMT economists like uh, Rohan Gray and uh, Nathan Tankis. Uh, all of those people, really, if you want that real in-depth discussion, they're, they're the people to go to. 
Yeah, I know Nathan has a, a, a pretty cool Twitter feed. He, he, he's been doing a lot of like independent journalism. Uh, and Scott, I think, was an ex-colleague of, of Stephanie Kelton's, too, uh, at the University of Missouri. So, yeah, there's a lot of great stuff out there on, on a lot of different levels. And I, I definitely um, hope people get, get themselves knowledgeable about this because this is going to be the economic part of it or the, uh, you know, the, the macroeconomic part of it of this whole leftist project is going to be driven by concepts like this and people really um, need to start wrapping their head around it. Yeah. Well, Nia, thank you very much for doing this. Um, I, I very much appreciate it. Uh, I want to let everybody know they can follow our stuff at Highlands Bunker on Twitter, uh, patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker, and also take a look at uh, Delaware's premier progressive online magazine, The Delaware Call, uh, which we're, we're also a part of. And, uh, yeah, once again, Nia, thanks so much. Thank you. Left is best. <laughs> <laughs>